It is truly an honor to be here with all of you and part of this incredible lineup of speakers. I'm honored, humbled to be counted among these men. And as Mike said, I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. And in the fall of 2020, it became clear to me that the people entrusted to our care were being attacked by social justice ideology and that my job as a pastor was to protect them. So at that time, I preached three sermons, did four live Q&As, and uh, six podcasts, all on this issue, in order to protect them. All of that content is on our podcast, Redeeming Truth, on our YouTube page. But in the sermons, what I did is I used Galatians as the paradigm for critiquing this anti-gospel ideology of social justice, because that letter was written to critique the anti-gospel ideology called Judaizing, which is the mixing of faith in Jesus with good works for salvation. So I turned those sermons into a book, and a kind publisher, G3 Press, published it entitled Stand, Christianity versus Social Justice, which, like Mike said, is available at the back. There are a couple back there. It's available on G3's website. It's available at Amazon in print and digital formats, and there are dozens of sites carrying the audiobook. So I had 25 copies on the back table. They are free, as Mike said, as a gift from the people of Redeemer Bible Church to you, but only... Only if you promise to read it, okay? So if you're not going to read it, go put it back. And if, if you have more than one per family, one of you, go put yours back so that other people can read this. So one per family, only if you're going to read it. It's super long, 90 pages. And uh, it's really hard to understand, just kidding. The, the feedback that I get the most from people who read the book is... Thank you for giving me language for how to explain why I know that this whole social justice ideology is not only false and not only unbiblical, but actually antichrist. And so please, one per family, only if you promise to read it. Now, forgive me for a minute. I, I, I need to geek out. When I was raised as a young child, I was raised on Star Wars. So when my parents wanted to get stuff done or just needed a break, they would pop in that VHS cassette of Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. I remember being in elementary school and talking to friends and having counted the amount of times that I'd watched both of those movies. Both of them were well over 50 by the time, I, even while I was still in single digits. So as a result, there was a point in my life when I had the entire movie Empire Strikes Back memorized. This series, the series of six movies are a story with familiar themes like good and evil, love for family, loyalty to friends, sacrificing for the greater good, all set against a backdrop of sci-fi action, Eastern religious ideology, and political intrigue. And it's that last topic I want to focus on. In the first three movies that came out, which are four, five, and six chronologically, there is a totalitarian galactic empire led by a single emperor who rules the entire galaxy, and then there's also a rebellion that seeks to overthrow tyranny, reinstate democracy and civil rights, and give power back to the people. In the second three movies, which are one, two, three chronologically, George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, said he wanted to explore how democracies fail. How people who strongly affirm democratic ideals become convinced that it is a good thing and the right thing to do to give up their freedom for safety and stability to a totalitarian regime that allows no freedom except the freedom to obey or else. 
Everyone watching the second trilogy knows the Republic will become an empire. And everybody knows that the capable and winsome Senator Palpatine will become Emperor Palpatine. And the second trilogy shows how that happens. He accomplishes the end of democracy, transitions a republic into an empire, and enslaves the entire galaxy. And he does it completely in the shadows. Nobody knows his plan except for him. And he executes it to perfection. He is the leader behind the separatists who are fomenting war with the republic. And he becomes the elected chancellor of the republic who raises a vast army to put an end to the separatists that he's actually leading behind the scenes. I think he very well could be called the greatest villain in cinema history because of the sheer scope of his plan, which is to enslave the entire universe, coupled with the brilliance of his manipulation and the inevitability and the invisibility of his movements. Only Satan is better. I'm starting my message this way today because Conflict, like in those movies, is not always as it seems. Sometimes what's really going on in conflict is invisible manipulation. Now, God saved me August 6, 1995. And in those early days, I became increasingly shocked at the amount of conflict and infighting there was among fellow Christians. It was embarrassing. It was infuriating. It was an actual burden for me as a brand new Christian. I was not a fan, and this became my prayer as a new Christian, a united Christianity, especially when I learned that this was Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we would all be one, united. And he not only prayed that we would all be united, but in John 17, he connected our unity to proof for non-Christians that we belong to him. In other words, Jesus gave non-Christians a test as to whether people were his or not, and it was our unity that was the test. I remember being asked in those early days if there was one thing that I wished I would see happen in my life in Christianity, what would it be? And my answer back in that day was that we would be the church united. No more infighting, no more denominations, no more camps and tribes, just one church. I mean, why did we have to fight so much with each other? Why don't we care about, more about the lost and how they perceive us and less about our picky, petty, insignificant light of eternity? The difference, why can't we all just get along? I mean, we all have God's son dying for us. We all have God's spirit within us. We all have God's word in front of us. We should be able in love to be united. Now, I know hearing that, you may be thinking what I'm thinking now, how naive. But don't let that one truth escape you that Jesus did, in fact, pray for our unity. Almost like he's God and he knew that in the centuries to come, we would need this prayer. Now, since then, I've come to see these differences will be with us until Jesus returns. Now, many of our differences are right because they're not over petty issues that don't matter, but over issues that matter greatly. And they exist because there are right answers and wrong answers to the issues that make up our our differences. I get that. And yet, despite all of our many differences, we're still supposed to be united with other Christians. If you have a Bible, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in a church. So open those Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Unity is not an optional thing for us. It is expected. It's demanded. And don't miss this. It's demanded because being united is a reflection of God himself, who is a trinity, a triunity of being and desire and purpose. And because unity is also a reflection of God's actions uniting us to himself in the forgiveness of our sins. So being a God who achieved unity with us, he expects there to be unity between us. 
And to a church that Paul had heard was being torn apart through factions and infighting, he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul writes this because the problem in Corinth that was causing all the disunity was that everyone was lining up behind their favorite teachers and fighting each other based on allegiance to men rather than allegiance to Christ. They felt a sense of superiority to other Christians based on who their hero is rather than a sense of unity based on their common allegiance to Jesus. And our unity with other Christians is so imperative because notice verse 10, if we're Christians, we're, quote, notice, brothers. Family members with God as our father, Christ as our brother. Their contentious behavior contradicted this reality. Also, agreement and unity are so imperative. Notice the text. Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ as a witness to motivate them to end the fighting and be united. He and Christ himself are united on this, that Christians are to be united. This is what the Lord wants. He, what he prayed for right before the cross. Our unity in the end is a reflection of God's will for our lives, the text says. When we're united, we're doing his will, and when we're doing his will, we're showing people how great he is. If we, if we aren't united, we're doing our will, which does not show people his greatness. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. To these Christians in this city of Ephesus, Paul wrote that living in a way that honors the salvation one enjoys means, verse 3, that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This unity is provided by the spirit and it is protected. It is to be protected by the saints. So listen, notice, if we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that means this unity is something that we already have together. It's not, we don't achieve the unity, we maintain the unity already provided. What is that unity? Well, we're all united in nature because all Christians are born again. We're united in one body, one group known as the church. We have the same Father, the same Lord Jesus Christ, and we all believe in worship and love. The same spirit giving, living in all of us as temples. The same eternal life of God flowing in all of our spiritual veins. So if God has united us to each other, we should be at peace. And let nothing get in the way of that unity. As this spiritual unity must dominate our interactions, our motives, our thoughts, our demeanor, and our desires. In other words, peace should mark our interaction because of the spiritual unity that we have. We must eagerly maintain this unity, that peace with one another, through love, through kindness, through humility, through patience, through enduring offenses rather than retaliating and seeking revenge, through de-escalating conflict, and through fighting the sin and anger and envy and pride that'll destroy our unity. Turn now to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, that's back to the left, about six books. Romans 12, and in verse 16, it says we are to, quote, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Do you hear the connection between pride and being wise in your own eyes and wise in your own estimation of yourself on the one side and not living in harmony with other Christians on the other side? In other words, pride is what destroys unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. Pride is the source of conflict that separates us from and even elevates us above others, creating cliques and in-crowds and different strata of people. This kind of conduct looks horrible from people who serve a God who, every, who has every right to stay separated from us and above us, but chose instead not only to come to us, but to become one of us to save us from our sins. It is conduct unbecoming. It is conduct in contradiction to this God. Paul comes back to this idea of unity in Romans 15. Romans chapter 15, saying in verse 5, quote, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul's wish, his desire, his prayer is that this church filled with Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, that they would be united with each other that all of the things that separate them would, 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 would be lower in their estimation as the gospel and the glory of God overcomes their interaction. That the God who is patient with us and encourages us would make us people who are patient with each other and encourage each other so as to protect and promote the unity Jesus purchased with his own blood. Yes, disagreements are inevitable, but an attitude that values harmony and unity over being right, destroying a fellow Christian who disagrees, it's not, it's not good. Also, how does the text say we are to welcome each other? What does it say in verse 6? We're to receive each other. Verse 7. We're to receive each other the same way Jesus received us. And how did he do that? in such a way that God looks good because of how we are received. In other words, that God gets glory, that people stand in awe of our God, that God in his grace looks great to other people because of how we treat each other in disagreement. Peacekeeping is to be the common everyday, nothing out of the ordinary way that we interact with each other. And pretty much that does not exist today. Today, the body of Christ in the U.S. is just as fractured as the world. The vitriol, the infighting, the factions, the conflict, the cancel culture, the lowercase spirit of Diotrephes who builds a platform at others' expense and does not accept other Christians but separates into cliques, all because of pride, that is what is common today. Now, I'll get into why I think this has happened, but listen, I so lament this. It is deeply saddening because I had so much hope for us. See, starting in the mid-2000s, I'm in my mid-20s, early 30s, and I saw a unity movement form and solidify with Reformed Christianity. A decade into being a Christian, my, and my, my dreams of unity were starting to be rekindled you know, when I saw Together for the Gospel. And I saw leaders who were Baptist and Presbyterian, charismatic and cessationist, covenantal and dispensational, amill and pre-mill, all uniting around the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe that we were finally keeping the main thing, the main thing. 
I couldn't believe that we're, we're, we weren't going to major on the minors anymore, but major on the major that is sinners finding forgiveness for all of their sins in Christ alone. Tens of thousands of Christians rejoiced in the light of what seemed to be a kind of revival, where what mattered most was what united us, not what divided us. Even though I never personally made it to any of those conferences, I've watched most of the messages and was so grateful for what I saw happening as there was a renewed sense of focus on the gospel and evangelism and world missions that gripped at least this part of the Reformed tribe. And today, that unity is no more. We don't even pretend to be together for the gospel today. We're back in our respective corners, embedded in our divisions, hunkered down in our cliques, only listening with safety when one of our tribe leaders is speaking and with theological fists up, ready to strike any who disagree. Now, even though we weren't ever united theologically for all of my voting life, which is almost 30 years at this point, I could take for granted, I could take it as a given that evangelicals were united politically. We believed in a free market, small government, a strong national defense, strong borders, freedom, justice, and equality for all, pro-family, pro-life, pro-law enforcement, low taxes, personal responsibility, fiscal restraint, etc. And as long as one of our political parties supported that platform, evangelicals were a block, a massive voting block. And that's because each one of these things reflects the Bible and the Judeo-Christian values and worldview that this country's founding documents are largely based on. Well, that consensus, that voting block is over now too. As record numbers of evangelicals have questioned such things as the free market and strong borders because they're embracing Marxist ideologies that redefine justice and equality, all while attacking pro-family, pro-life, pro-law enforcement, personal responsibility platforms. And why is it like this, you ask? Why is that happening? Why is there this fracture of the unity that exists today? When we are commanded in the scriptures over and over again to be united with our brothers and sisters, even across disagreements? I think first it's because we become worldly. Instead of being prophetic, we are pathetic because we ape the world, we copy the world, we let the values and the ideologies of the world give us our marching orders. In our thinking, our desiring, our attitudes, our feelings, and our actions, we have become like the world. And as we've been seeing in the narratives of the Old Testament, it is obvious that every time God's people become like the world, they lost to the world. Every single time. And that's what's happening now. We've become like the world and lost our influence in the world. And we've lost our influence in the world because we are no longer united. Once we, once we adopted worldly ideas and worldly thinking, worldly philosophy, that fractured our unity. The cancel culture, the disrespect, the gossip, the judgmentalism, the slander, the public shaming, the sarcasm, the mockery that marks the world is now accepted online interaction between people who will be in heaven together forever. Interestingly, when James, Jesus' brother, calls out the Christians he was writing to for being worldly, the evidence he presents to them in James 4.1 are the quarrels and fights that they had with each other. And he identifies the source of their conflict as their desires for things that they sought pleasure in, things that made them happy, things that pleased them. So that today, making a point, getting that endorphin rush from likes and comments and shares, online celebrity and the influence that brings, all of that now trumps the unity that we are told, Ephesians 4, 3, to be eager to maintain. 
intensely desirous to preserve, zealous and obsessive about protecting. We treat fellow Christians like enemies while our real enemies laugh and while our real enemies keep right on advancing for our very eyes. I mean, Paul said, Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing how, how clever you are in your Twitter comments, right? No, Christians, we are to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Add to that, we've also become dominated by the marketing te techniques of Madison Avenue, the business savvy of Wall Street, the exhibitionism of social media, the celebrity cult of Hollywood, and the win-at-all-cost ethos of our politics. All that and more has infected this church to such a degree that if you don't participate in that stuff, you're just weird or you're, or you're irrelevant. And all the while, non-Christians are asking, why would I join you when you act just like me? Why would I do that? There's no difference here. We become inward focused when our leader was the most outward focused person that has ever lived and started a movement that still exists for the outsider to see them reconciled to God and integrated into a community that truly lasts forever. Am I the only one seeing this? Anyone else deeply bothered by this? You might be thinking, but preacher, what about calling out false teaching? Great, do it, do it. But there's no fine line between truth and false teaching. False teaching and false teachers are not to be treated the same way we treat brothers in error. So it's not false teaching, if it's, if it's not Christianity that's at stake, if it's not the gospel that's being attacked or subverted or counterfeited, then stay united with other Christians. Today, however, most of our Christian leaders don't call out heresy. They call out the ones who are calling out heresy and treat them like heretics for calling out heretics because it doesn't seem to them to be loving or kind or winsome or nuanced enough. They're okay with attacking brothers while giving false teachers a pass. And this kind of weak, slippery, equivocating, sniveling, fearful sympathy for the devil is not what gave evangelicals the influence we once enjoyed in the larger culture. Our leaders used to be clear, men of battle-tested conviction and unwavering courage and united, but no more. Now, if Christians are flirting with or straight up embracing, integrating heresy with the gospel, if they are misleading their flocks entrusted to their care, then call it out from the rooftops like we're doing. Warn the flock, name names, get people out of those so-called churches and call on the leaders to repent. Let them have it, go after them all in. Yes, a thousand times. Do that with social justice. Do that with Christian nationalism. Call it out. If it's not heresy, if it's not a gospel substitute, if it's not a counterfeit of the truth disguised as the truth while really undermining the truth, if it's not a demonic ideology with a track record of delusion, death, and destruction, if it's not that, like Marxism, if it's not that, let's strive to be at peace with our brothers and sisters that we disagree with. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Just bring glory to God, speaking the truth and loving all people, of course the lost, but also other Christians. Well, the political unity we enjoyed for decades and the unity across theological lines that many evangelical tribes also enjoyed fairly recently, like I said before, it's gone. It's gone today. 
And it's not just worldliness that destroyed it. No, we've been infiltrated. In other words, the disunity, the division, the dismantling of evangelical unity that we've been experiencing for around a decade now may actually be coordinated and strategic. See, the warning against being infiltrated by false teachers and false teaching goes all the way back to the first century. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus said, infiltration is Satan's work. Jude verse 4 says Christians may not even notice the infiltration. 2 Peter 2.2 2 says the infiltration will deceive many. It will be successful. In Acts 20.29, 20, Paul said infiltration can even come from church leaders. Let me repeat that. Jesus said infiltration is Satan's work in relation to his church. That is one of his primary goals. That is his way to weaken the church. Is through infiltration. He also, the text also says that infiltration will go unnoticed. Jude says it. They have crept in unnoticed. Peter says they will be successful because they will deceive many and it will come, even come, from respected church leaders. What could this look like? Well, there's a proponent of... Catholic integralism, Harvard Law professor Adrian Vermeule, along with his co-author Cass Sunstein, wrote an academic paper called Conspiracy Theories. You can just Google that. Conspiracy Theories, Cass Sunstein, Adrian Vermeule, where they argued that the best way to deal with a conspiracy theory is through, quote, cognitive infiltration. See, their goal is to combat conspiracy theories by injecting people and groups who hold to these theories with, quote, diverse viewpoints and new factual assumptions, end quote, and that that would take down conspiracy theories. The tactic they suggest is simple. Government agents or their allies undermine conspiracy theories by, quote, planting doubts about the theories, thereby introducing beneficial cognitive diversity. Introducing diverse ideas through the tactic of cognitive infiltration breaks large groups that supply ideas to their followers into smaller groups, less influential groups, through the introduction of opposing ideas. And this tactic doesn't need to only be used on conspiracy theories. It can be used to change the minds of any people, any group of people, and it has been. If this sounds kind of familiar, it's been done for decades through Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Asia, where our government would send pro-United States, pro-democracy content into communist and Muslim countries. The authors actually describe how the State Department used Arabic-speaking agents in online spaces to successfully counter radical Islamic ideology and to do so, like I said, with success. So today, whether it's our government or true Christians or bad faith actors posing as Christians, you can see this tactic being used to de-unify evangelicals. Has this tactic been used, whether knowingly or unknowingly, in the church? Well, through organizations like Together for the Gospel, Christianity Today, and the Gospel Coalition, evangelicalism has been merged with progressive ideology. How did they do that, you ask? You should already know the answer because you've heard it in almost every presentation. The method for doing that is the dialectic. Merge the truth with a lie to create a new truth. So what does this look like? You have a given consensus like no female pastors, divorce for only adultery and abandonment, 
post-modern ideology is false teaching. Homosexuality in both desire and lifestyle is sin. Enforce the law on our southern border. Systemic oppression is not true. Take a consensus, and then what? Find an evangelical to show there is an opposite way to see the consensus and still be an evangelical. Now you've created two sides to the argument, both accepted as evangelical, and then you bring someone in to do what? To write the article that says, well, both sides have their strengths and weaknesses, and while I still agree with the consensus, you can still hold the opposite view and and still be solid. And what did that just do? What did that just do? You've got the consensus, you've got the opposite, you've got the new consensus, and which direction did you just move? You just moved to the left. And now this is your new starting point. The consensus is now extremism. It's strong, and then fill in the blank, complementarianism. And then now this is the accepted, and now you find what? Somebody to take the opposite view, somebody to write the mediating position, and you just did what? Just move to the left again. This has been happening, both theologically and politically, in evangelicalism, for at least a decade, if not more. And what did they do? These organizations gained our trust over many years with big names that promoted them. With that trust of the evangelical community, they slowly started moving evangelicalism towards the left. So that in our last election, there was a group called Evangelicals for Biden, something that would never have existed 20 years ago, never would have existed 10 years ago. Today, we, we, we have so much problem being clear on female pastors and homosexuality and divorce is now just for any reason. And integrating postmodernism or social justice ideology is just so common in most evangelical colleges and seminaries that you're not accepted if you don't do it and stand against it. You're the weirdo. You're the extremist for rejecting it. So through worldliness and infiltration, we are today just as divided as our larger culture So instead of fighting the real enemy, which is Marxist ideology, as a rival to Christianity, a theological movement disguised as a political movement, instead of fighting that, what are we doing? We're fighting each other. The enemy has a track record of death and destruction more horrific than anything in recorded history, and it advances day after day after day in our culture. While we fight about Trump, Biden, George Floyd, COVID, vaccine, misinformation, fake news, January 6th, Russia, Ukraine, global warming, immigration, drag story hour, gender affirming care, and just wait, there's more. There's going to be more after this. Add to that what evangelicals, because evangelicals are fighting about that. And then add to that what we've been fighting about recently. Classical versus presuppositional apologetics. Biblical counseling versus integration. Pro-life versus abolitionists. Incrementalism in ending abortion versus immediatism. Churches opened or closed. True revival in Asbury or not. Church services on Christmas Day or not. Christian nationalism. Female pastors. The chosen. Millennial positions. Yoga pants. Head coverings. Worship style. Save America and preach the gospel or just preach the gospel. New conflicts popping up almost every day. Now, some of those are in-house debates that are great to have, but combine an in-house debate with social media and cancel culture, and we feel like we have to take a side, and we have to do it quickly, and then pronounce anathemas on any who disagree with us, and our Theo bro hero, so that I am a Paul and you are a Peter, rather than not going after people, brothers, 
working things out privately if possible, while thinking, praying, reading both sides, coming to a reasoned biblical response. What are we doing? We, we ready, fire, aim at each other a lot. But maybe that's been the goal all along. See, social media is the perfect delivery system for conflict. And the result is that evangelicals, we are destabilized and deunified. We're always on the defensive. We're divided, constantly losing confidence in people we trust because we're always being pushed to take a side on everything, making unity impossible. But that's the goal. Why? Because there is no strength. There is no influence. There is no movement against tyranny without Christianity. And our enemies know this. Why? Because they listen to Jesus better than we do when he said, a house, what? Divided against itself cannot stand. So what do they do? They keep selling division and we keep buying it at the cost of friendships and our public witness. They know the root of Protestant is protest. They know Protestantism started as a fight. They know our motto is always reforming, which has us always looking for something wrong in order to fix it. So we fall for this trap again and again, fighting each other, staying divided. And our enemies laugh at how gullible and easily manipulatable we are. While, by the way, they just keep advancing. And interesting, while we're fighting about all of that and a whole lot more, have you noticed how the evangelical leadership class is largely silent about things like the World Economic Forum, sex trafficking, encroaching tyranny like digital currency and social credit scores like ESG, China's growth and strength, escalating conflict all the way. You notice they're silent about all those things? In fact, it seems to me like our weekly conflict over what the next thing, whatever that's going to be, is meant to keep us distracted from what's really going on in our world. It's almost like you can tell what the real stories are by what they're not talking about. So could it be that like the senators and Jedi in Star Wars, that we've become pawns of a phantom menace who manufactures conflict and offers the solution, and we're playing right into their hands because we're naive and they're winsome and deceptive and devious. And like the Jedi, we're standing by totally unaware of the game that is being played on us. We know from Jesus that infiltrating us is Satan's goal and his work. Do we really believe that what I've described is something like, or something like it can't happen to us? That infiltration just can't be the source of all the conflict among Christians? Remember, we've been told that satanic infiltration will happen without us noticing it. It will be effective, effective because it deceives many and even uses Christian leaders to get it done. If you pay attention to the evangelical Twitter class, you can see those who are constantly fomenting conflict. Whether it's Satan, bad actors, or both, there is a strategy here. Do not be Naive. Remember, we've already seen it. We, we heard it from the lecture last night. That the attack on faith and family is coordinated because the enemy knows faith and family make people, especially kids, resistant to their revolution. So do not think that all this conflict that you might see amongst Christians, do not think that that's just, wow, how did all that happen? 
This is a coordinated attack. This is an ideological war that you are in the middle of. And I want you to keep this in mind. Proverbs 6.16 says there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And verse 19 tells us the seventh and final thing that God just loathes. And before I tell you what it is, what, what do you think it is? I mean, if you're going to make a list of the, thing God's hate, the things God hates, I wonder if number seven would be on your list. Quote, one who sows discord among brothers. The word sow means to send. So one who sends, one who starts the conflict between Christians. Notice God hates not the conflict. Did you hear that? What is it that he hates? One who sows discord among brothers. So God hates not the conflict. The text says he hates the person who starts Christians fighting each other. Proverbs 13.10 says that, quote, by insolence or pride comes nothing but strife. What is the source of conflict? What is the source of separating into cliques and elevating one above the other to separate from us, to de-unify us? What is the source of that? Pride. And James 4.6 says God opposes the proud. He sets himself up as their opposition and resists them, works against them. So know that even in their seeming success at infiltrating our ranks, wolves in shepherds' clothing, many of them, God hates them if they aren't his, and if they are his, he doesn't hate them, but he is opposing them. See, until a majority of evangelicals do what the Bible tells us to do, which is 2 Corinthians eleven four, stop tolerating people spreading lies as truth, Romans 16, 17, avoid those who cause division. And Titus 3, 10, have nothing to do with those who cause division until we obey the Bible on this. Which you are seeing us trying to do, calling out false teaching, saying this is wrong, separate from it. Until we obey the Bible on this, we will remain divided. Worldliness and infiltration will control us. The enemy will keep advancing and the shining city on a hill, which is the true church, will keep being marginalized and attacked. Remember, our Savior said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Without a united evangelicalism, there is no stopping tyranny. Just like capitalism is a stabilizing force against an economic revolution like we heard last night, Evangelicalism has been a stabilizing force in the U.S. against cultural revolution and tyranny, and our enemies know this. So what do they do? They start many revolutions within the church to fracture our unity so that now we're too busy fighting each other to fight the real enemies instead of doing what the Lord told us to do, which is to be and stay united. I don't know about you, but... but I look at rebellion movements against tyranny and I admire the rebels, don't you? We imagine ourselves as the one who wouldn't hail Hitler when everybody else was, right? We, we imagine ourselves being that guy, that woman. Well, now is the time to rebel. And what I've been saying is we rebel against tyranny and defeat the real enemies in our culture today by being united. And I'll leave you with a real world example of this better way. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur are two of the most respected evangelical leaders in the late 20th and early 21st century. MacArthur's still with us. R.C. went home to be with the Lord in 2017. 
No man is sinless. Each has their own flaws that they readily admit to. They were friends Spoke at each other's conferences, filled each other's pulpits, endorsed each other's ministry, and and loved golfing together. While both fought hard for the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone. They had sharp disagreements on classical versus presuppositional apologetics, dispensational versus covenant theology, believers versus infant baptism, amillennialism versus premillennialism, and I'm sure there was more they disagreed about. Interesting, all of those debates and many more are raging today. And many on both sides of those current divides revere both R.C. and John MacArthur. Well, both men were convictional, courageous stalwarts of biblical orthodoxy. They also modeled for us what I've been talking about, a true unity between Christians who disagree. Let's revere both men by following their example of true tolerance and Christian love by doing the hard but necessary work Staying united with other Christians. Let's stop shooting at each other on the battlefield. You're not going to win the war if you shoot each other, right? Can we just all agree to that? It's impossible. So what does the enemy do? Hey, do you notice your, you notice your, your mate over there? He's not, he's, his uniform's not right. Hey, hey you notice he doesn't agree with you on this thing. And you know what happens? The enemy just sneaks right by and keeps going. No, let's aim our, all of our guns in unison at the enemy and fire away. If it's Christ attacking false teaching like we've been hearing about today, take it down. If it's not, make every effort to stay united. And our enemies cannot win. Thanks for listening.